Listener note, this podcast was created as an adjunct for those studying for the PCS exam. By no means do we guarantee that one will pass the exam solely by listening to this podcast. We encourage all those studying for the exam to put the appropriate time and effort into their studying using resources recommended by the ABPTS and the APTA. It is not allowed to discuss test content and we will not accept any questions related to test content. While we will do our best to provide the most accurate information, if you feel as though we have stated something that is incorrect, please contact us via Instagram at Pushing Pediatrics. Hi, I'm Sheila. And I'm Sarah. And welcome to Pushing Pediatrics, an educational podcast for physical therapists created to help those studying for the Pediatric Certified Specialist exam and anyone else interested in learning more about pediatric physical therapy. This week, we are going over congenital heart defects. Honestly, this topic can be very overwhelming because there's a lot of information and the information is very dense. We are going to do the best we can to condense this chapter to give you the basic information. We recommend that you go through this chapter in Campbell thoroughly. PCS Advantage also has a great study guide on this material, and there are some good YouTube videos that are made for families to understand the different congenital defects. I watched a good number of these just to get a visual of the defect. I also heard in a meeting that I was in last night that there may be within the next year or so. So if you're taking the exam in the future or you're listening to this later on, there may be some fact sheets coming out. Approximately six to 10 in a thousand children are born each year with moderate and severe forms of congenital heart defects. The cause remains largely unknown. There may be a possible genetic component. Heart defects may be associated with Down syndrome, Turner syndrome, Williams syndrome, Marfan syndrome, Costello syndrome, DeGeorge syndrome, and the V-A-T-E-R-A-L association, which is an acronym for vertebrae, imperforna anus, cardiac anomalies, tracheoesophageal fistula, renal anomalies, and limb anomalies. An infant with a congenital heart defect often has abnormal respiratory signs, including a labored breathing pattern and an increased respiratory rate. The infant may be diaphoretic and tachycardic. Symptoms may include edema around the eyes and decreased urine output. The infant may also have eating problems due to the inability to coordinate that suck-swallow reflex, and they may show signs of irritability. Congenital heart defects are classified as either cyanotic or acyanotic. With acyanotic conditions, the child is pink and has normal oxygen saturation. Some common acyanotic conditions include atrial septal defects, ventricular septal defects, patent ductus arteriosus, coarction of the aorta, pulmonary stenosis, and aortic stenosis. In cyanotic conditions, blood is typically shunted from the right side of the heart to the left side. Unoxygenated blood is then returned to the body. Common cyanotic conditions include tetralogy of Fallot, transposition of the great arteries, tricuspid atresia, pulmonary atresia, 
truncus arteriosus, total anomalous pulmonary venous return, and hypoplastic left heart syndrome. We're going to post an Instagram post with the different heart defects classified into each category. For us, this was the easiest way to kind of differentiate between them, and it was also the easiest way to think about them and to answer a question. On practice exams, if there was a question on a congenital heart defect, it would describe the symptoms the child was having, and then you were required to choose the correct heart defect. If you could at least differentiate between which ones were cyanotic and acyanotic, you were more likely to be able to answer the question correctly, or at least you could eliminate one or two answers confidently. Before we go over a summary of the different types of heart defects, let's briefly go over blood flow in the heart as a general review. We found this simple overview on the University of Michigan Health website. The right atrium receives oxygen-poor blood from the body and pumps it to the right ventricle through the tricuspid valve. The right ventricle pumps the oxygen-poor blood to the lungs through the pulmonary valve via the pulmonary arteries. The left atrium receives oxygen-rich blood from the lungs via the pulmonary veins and pumps it into the left ventricle through the mitral valve. The left ventricle pumps the oxygen-rich blood through the aortic valve out to the rest of the body via the aorta. Now let's go into a brief synopsis of the congenital heart conditions. We found this information in Table 28.1 in Campbell's 5th edition. Let's start with acyanotic heart defects. An atrial septal defect is an abnormal communication between the left and the right atria. Surgical repair is done by placing a septal occluder or a synthetic material to basically close that hole. Excellent survival and low morbidity rates have been reported. A ventricular septal defect is the most common congenital heart defect. It can present alone or in association with other defects like tetralogy of Furlough and transposition of the great arteries. It is a communication between the ventricles that allows blood to be shunted between them, generally from left to right. This puts a lot of blood into the right ventricle and makes it work really hard, causing pulmonary hypertension. Small defects may close on their own, but surgical repair is done with a Dacron patch, closure, or a device closure. If the VSD is large, you will see signs of severe respiratory distress and fatigability, especially during eating. An atrioventricular septal defect is when both the atria and the ventricles have communication between them. It is common in Down syndrome and is associated with failure to thrive. Developmental delay may interfere with physical therapy. Surgical repair includes a pericardial patch. Patent ductus arteriosus is when the ductus arteriosus, a large vessel that connects the main pulmonary artery to the descending aorta, does not close. Surgery is done via video-assisted thoracoscopic surgery or transcatheter coil occlusion. So remember, the ductus arteriosus is the connection in the fetal heart that basically bypasses the lungs because blood doesn't need to go to the lungs in a fetal heart circulation. So moving on to coarctation of the aorta, which is a narrowing or closing of the section of the aorta. Early repair is necessary if the child is severely symptomatic, but this is one that sometimes goes undiagnosed until a routine physical reveals hypertension. 
Surgical repair includes placing a stent or a subclavian patch or an end-to-end anastomosis. Associated issues may include hypertension. Physical therapy issues include upper extremity range of motion. Pulmonary stenosis is a narrowing of the right ventricle outflow tract. Surgery is usually a valotomy. Aortic stenosis is a narrowing of the left ventricular outflow tract. Surgery is usually a valotomy, an aortic valve replacement, or a conduit. Okay, now moving on to the cyanotic defects. Tetralogy of Fralot is the most common complex cardiac defect. The primary abnormalities include ventricular septal defect, right ventricular outflow tract obstruction, and aorta that overrides the right ventricle, and hypertrophy of the right ventricle. One thing to be aware of with this are the TET spells. These are periods of profound systemic hypoxia that occur in the context of crying, eating, or defecation. They are characterized by dyspnea, syncope, and a deepening cyanosis. Cyanotic episodes can be relieved by squatting or by bringing the knees up to the chest. Surgical procedures include closing the ventricular septal defect and the right ventricular outflow tract is resected. Transposition of the great arteries is when the pulmonary artery arises from the morphologic left ventricle and the aorta arises from the right ventricle. Immediate intervention is necessary. The preferred surgical technique is the arterial switch procedure and surgery during the first two to four weeks of life is desirable. Some associated issues include edema and poor left ventricle function. Physical therapy issues include decreasing exercise tolerance with age. Tricuspid atresia is when there is a failure of development of the tricuspid valve. Surgical repair is staged. The initial operation is a BT shunt. A BT shunt is a small tube that connects the atrial circulation to the pulmonary circulation in order to get more blood flow to the lungs. The second operation is a Fontan procedure. At times, the Glenn procedure is performed before the Fontan procedure and leads to better outcomes. The Fontan procedure diverts venous blood from the inferior and superior vena cavas to the pulmonary arteries without passing through the right ventricle. The Glenn procedure involves creating an anastomosis of the superior vena cava to the right pulmonary artery. These surgeries are important to be aware of, but I wouldn't stress out knowing all of the specific ins and outs of the surgeries. I probably dove way too deep into this when I was studying. Pulmonary atresia is when the pulmonary valve fails to develop. Surgery varies depending on the presentation of the defect. Truncus arteriosus is when the aorta and the pulmonary artery fail to separate in utero and they form a common trunk arising from both ventricles. Surgery includes removing the pulmonary arteries from the trunk, closing the VSD, and connecting the pulmonary arteries to the right ventricle. A pulmonary hypertensive crisis could be an associated issue. Physical therapy issues include developmental delays and failure to thrive. Total anomalous pulmonary venous return occurs when the pulmonary vein fails to communicate with the left atrium and instead connects to the coronary sinus of the right atrium or to one of the systemic veins. 
Anastomosis of the pulmonary veins to the left atrium is usually done as soon as possible. Hypoplastic left heart syndrome is the incomplete development, underdevelopment, or absence of the left ventricle and hypoplasia of the ascending aorta. Without surgical intervention, death is certain. Surgical intervention includes division of the main pulmonary artery, suture of the pulmonary artery to the aorta, a BT shunt, and a patent ductus arteriosus ligation, bidirectional glen or hemifontan procedure, and or a fenestrated fontan procedure. Associated issues include low oxygen saturations. Physical therapy issues include that the child may be a poor oral feeder, developmentally delayed, may not crawl, may have neurologic and behavioral issues, and decreased exercise tolerance, especially with a right-to-left shunt. These kids usually run very low on their O2 sats at baseline. It's important here to be communicating with the families and understand what your particular patient's baseline is because it's likely to be outside of typical parameters. Wow, that was a lot of information. Again, don't majorly stress on these. We both did and absolutely obsessed over them, and they didn't come up on practice exams as often as we thought they would. Spend more of your energy on the big picture topics rather than obsessing over the small, minute details. Something else to be aware of is pediatric heart failure. Interventions for heart failure include ionotropic support and technological support, including things like ECMO and VADS. VADS are ventricular assistive devices. Ionotropic agents are drugs that increase or decrease the contractility of the heart during preload and afterload. Some of the drugs include digoxin, dopamine, neuroepinephrine, epinephrine, and a whole list of other ones. ECMO stands for extracorporeal membrane oxygenation. Basically, it consists of an external circuit that moves venous blood through an artificial gas exchanger, which provides blood oxygenation and decarboxylation. ECMO is capable of providing support for several days to at most a few weeks and is associated with severe complications, including cerebral infarction, brain hemorrhage, renal failure, and multi-organ system failure. It's important to be aware of a history of ECMO due to these factors and their impact on development. Again, we talked about this before, but VAD stands for ventricular assistive device. They are circulatory pumps that supplement or completely replace the pumping function of one or both ventricles. They tend to be a bridge to a transplant device or recovery device. Of note, the Berlin Heart XOR, which can be used as a left ventricular device, or an LVAD, or a biventricular assistive device, a BIVAD, is the only pediatric device approved by the FDA. I feel like the only reason I know what an LVAD is. Gray's Anatomy. Gray's Anatomy. 100%. 100%. Yep. It's Denny. I like feel like (laughs) LVAD is like the one thing I remember. Was that season one of Gray's Anatomy? I think, yeah, I think it was. It was very early on. Yeah, that's all I think about when I read that. Anyways, back to our content. (laughs) Heart transplant is also an option for children. Of note, children with a heart transplant may have a higher than normal resting heart rate and a decreased heart rate response to exercise. Therefore, the child should perform an extensive warm-up and cool down during a rehab program. 
Rejection of the organ may also occur. Anti-rejection treatment is given after a heart transplant, but rejection is still the number one cause of death post-transplant. There are many other complications, signs, and symptoms that should be of note in a child with a heart transplant. We suggest that you read this section thoroughly as it provides significantly pertinent information for the physical therapist. The book next goes into management after cardiac surgery. We're going to summarize this section for you from box 28.1 in Campbell's fifth edition. Post-surgical management includes positioning and respiratory techniques to mobilize secretions and increase aeration. Early mobilization, including range of motion exercises and walking, screening for neurological impairments is important, and supporting the family to interact and care for their child. We also need to facilitate age-appropriate activities and developmental play. In infancy and early childhood, screening for and monitoring for neurological impairment should still occur. Other management includes screening and intervention for developmental and sensory motor delays, facilitating mutually enjoyable parent-child interactions, assessing an education on feeding difficulties and providing support as necessary, encouraging a family to allow their child to self-limit activity and play rather than parent-limiting activity and play, and lastly, providing the family information to anticipate how the child's cardiac function may influence development. In childhood and adolescence, it is still important to screen for and monitor for neurologic impairments. Assessing endurance is also important, as well as visual perceptual, visual motor, motor planning, and fine motor skills, and adapting recommendations for physical activity, including instruction and education as necessary. A physical therapist can also establish an exercise program to improve the child's endurance, strength, self-esteem, and to decrease parental anxiety. The physical therapist can also support the child to engage in regular exercise, including participation in desired recreational activities and addressing parental concerns. Few other things mentioned in the book include the FLAC scale and the dyspneus index. The FLAC scale stands for faces, legs, activity, cry, and consolability. It can be used for children two months to 18 years. According to the APTA, it is only validated for children postoperatively for ages zero to seven years. However, it can be used in older children with cognitive impairments. The dyspnea index requires the child to count out loud to 15. The goal is to initially do this in one breath. Exercise should increase the number of breaths to reach the count of 15 by only one or two breaths and should not be resumed until a return to resting baseline. If I'm remembering correctly, there's an expert consult case study in this chapter, perhaps, because I want to say that they go through physical therapy treatment session and the girl basically is just going through cardiac equipment and counting to 15. It was kind of a interesting case study. Yeah, I don't personally remember looking at it, but I didn't utilize the expert console as much as I wish I did when I was studying. I think that it's a really valuable tool, but I think there was one for this one. So check it out. It could be helpful for sure. All right, talk about a dense chapter. We will put the acyanotic and cyanotic defects on our Instagram for your future reference. 
Like we said at the beginning, make sure you're reading this chapter thoroughly and check out PCS Advantages Cardiopulmonary Study Guide. Um, check out the YouTube videos if you want to just visualize some of the heart defects. I thought that that was helpful. The book does have good pictures, but some of the videos I found were actual videos of the heart defects. So I thought it was really helpful. Thank you all so much for listening to Pushing Pediatrics. You can follow us on Instagram at Pushing Pediatrics. We would love to hear from you. So send us questions, suggestions, things you want to hear more of and things you'd maybe want to hear less of. We will talk to you guys next week. And remember, you totally got this.